1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever. With each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your greasy little mitts on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I don't know why I just said it like that. You sound like an old timey newsman. Let's do Hello it. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest this week is a writer and humorist whose work has been featured in the LA Times, The Guardian, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and McSweeney's, as well as a former podcast host who you might recall from such shows as The Ringer's The Masked Man and Polygon's Galaxy Brains. He is also, much more importantly, a multi-time KingCast guest who, for his triumphant fourth appearance on the show, is here for a format-breaking episode that will focus on an unproduced draft for a feature film based on the stand that was written by... Uh, a gentleman by the name of Rospo Pollenberg in 1990. It is not good. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Mr. Dave Schilling. Dave, how are you doing today? Oh, I, I've i been better. Um, yes. I stayed up till midnight reading The Stand by Rospo Pollenberg, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm stained. I'm scarred. Yes. I see visions uh, when I sleep of a cornfield and um, women being abused. In yes, and, and boot claws on on or claws on boots or some yeah, bullshit. Boot claws, yeah. The sound of a boot claw. Uh, this will make this, sense soon, Dave. I don't know if you're aware of this, but before the Kingcast became a reality, I was developing a whole other podcast idea all about unproduced screenplays. So when you came to me, uh, or you came to us, when you came, Scott was like, "Hey, he wants to." To want just to read this this version of the stand that didn't happen. I'm like, hell yeah, this is way up my alley. I like I I developed this whole fucking thing. I interviewed Guillermo del Toro about his At the Mountains of Madness screenplay. I'm like, this is gonna be the best thing ever. And then it just never materialized. I love reading about unproduced material like yeah. the the nerd in my uh you know my the one that I keep concealed because obviously on the surface I'm a very cool and respectable guy and not a uh, <laughs> on the surface. Yeah, I'm like a uh, cool it's guy. Just, yeah, it's just very <laughs> fascinated. I'm a Richard Bachman on the outside. That's what I look like. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm always fascinated by this stuff. So I'm so glad you you brought this uh, idea to us, and I'm excited that we're going to get a chance to uh, to dive into this uh, because like the the old podcast idea, I think it was a fun one. But then uh, then the folks at uh, what is it? I believe it's called Best Movies Never Made. 
uh, like uh, Scott and I guessed it on, on the show once. Um, they kind of beat me to the punch on that idea. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I don't know. This makes me happy that I'm kind of marrying, you know, the, the show that did become a reality with the, the one that, that didn't. And, uh, so even though I'm really pissed off that I had to read this script for it, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you, you brought this idea to the show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought about like, the canon of Stephen King and mm. the idea of adapting his work has been um, omnipresent in our life, right? Like there's so many different film versions of King novels, short stories, novellas, etc. But so many people have failed mm-hmm. at doing that, at taking very literary work and making it cinematic. Um, so I thought there's got to be a treasure trove of just lost <laughs> scripts out there for for versions of of his, his most popular works that just didn't make it through Hollywood because of whatever reason. Mm. Um, so many of his of his stories are very edgy or uh, kind of heady or so fantastical that you can't really adapt them or they're too long, like The Stand. You know, that's one of the reasons why no one's made Infinite Jest into a, a movie. It's mm. too, there's too much going on. And when you read this script, this version, you're like, boy, they never should have done this as a movie for the exact reason that this script sucks. <laughs> because people just magically appear places, even though the United States of America is gigantic. And the story takes place across the entire country. It's just, it never would have worked. And it certainly didn't work because Rospo Pollenberg, who is alive, I will not say anything too harsh about him because he's still kicking somewhere, probably in Italy or somewhere. How old is he? 80, I think. We could Um, take him. Fuck him. Yeah, okay, it shit sucks and he's a bad writer. <laughs> he stinks. He also wrote Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which we all know sucks ass too. Yeah, yeah he he fucked this up really hard. It's, yeah, and um, I won't I'm make not excuses feeling, I'm for not, him. I'm not feeling gentle after having... <laughs> having sp- it, it took three fucking attempts for me to get through this goddamn thing. Like, this is a cruel movie. This is yeah. a mean-spirited film, and I believe this was intended to be directed by George Romero. At least that's the um, Christ Almighty. accepted uh, the accepted <laughs> wisdom is that he was attached at Warner's. He brought in Rospo, who had worked with John Borman before. He also um, co-wrote Borman's Lord of the Rings, where Galadriel and Frodo have sex. So you kind of yeah. get where he's coming from in terms of why this is such a a stupid, witless, and um, perverse movie. And blatantly misogynistic tale, Blatant. too. And, and listen, I'm not even talking about in 2023, like, eyes. <laughs> this isn't, like, post-woke. Like, oh, the, right. we don't like, you know, the describing women as, you know, beautiful, but they don't know it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about literally, <laughs> li- literal blatant misogyny that would have been like i turning in 1990 when this draft was right. turned in right absolutely right. yeah yeah it is it is unbelievable uh, let me let me ask you you gents this so you're you're tasked with adapting the stand which has one of stephen king's early great female lead characters in franny goldsmith right mm-hmm. yeah and <laughs> do you then choose to do what what our pal here did and introduce her on page 44 or do you introduce her i don't know maybe at the beginning of the story where she belongs yeah she is yeah she is introduced not as her own fully formed character but as harold's like lady 
after yes. the apocalypse. You know, she's kind of, you know, following him along or something. It's it's a complete like. I mean, it's not just Franny. It's it's especially glaring on Franny because yeah. uh, she's the biggest female lead in the story. Right. Thing, right. Yeah. Um, but he he does all of the characters a disservice in this somehow. Like every single every single fucking choice is wrong. And the uh, tonally, as Dave pointed out, it's just it's just kind of mean. Everyone's an asshole to each other, like at all times, sometimes without any kind of provocation. And well, I'm rambling, but no, I wouldn't do that. I would I would (laughs) probably. Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't try to adapt the stand into a feature film to begin with. It's a Mm. thousand page fucking novel. You're going to give me one hundred and thirty six pages in exchange. Fuck off. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It was a, a fool's errand, but yes. Hollywood can't help themselves because a movie in your head seems more prestigious. Sure. Oh, we can't do it as a TV show. I think that's why the the It miniseries was not seen as definitive, even though it was maybe in some ways better than than the feature film versions. Uh-huh. There were people who grew up with it and, and, and they loved it and they loved how kind of um, low budget and cheeky it was compared to right. the very high gloss, very spooky um, and affecting movie version. But it wasn't a movie, right? It's it's a it was an ABC miniseries with mm-hmm. Tim Curry and clown makeup, right? Like mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't have that patina of 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 um, prestige that a movie right. would. So I think when people look at the stand, it's a big story, right? It's about the apocalypse. It's about the the reformation of human society, good versus evil. There's a nuclear bomb at the end. There's all this great stuff. How could this be a TV show? Mm-hmm. How could this be a miniseries? You want to be able to, to do it up and make it as big as the story um, demands it to be. Right. But you couldn't do that in 1990. You couldn't make a big story like that. It's easier to, to, to recreate dairy and, and, and do this small kind of story about collective trauma in a small town on TV, but how do you do the stand as a miniseries? Obviously they go on and do it in 1994, but I don't think anybody would ever say say. it didn't take them long to figure out that they could do that. (laughs) They could, but then it, it, you know, if you strip the, if you strip the story down, it's not the sci-fi fantasy epic that it could have been, but it still has the, the, the elements of the story are there. Um, But boy, like in your head when you're reading it and you're thinking about it, it's like this is this is massive. It's Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. That was the whole point, right? It's like yeah. I want to make Lord of the Rings for America. Um, and so it just feels small when it's a TV show. This yeah. still feels small because there's no journey, right? Like Lord of the Rings is about, hey, let's all get together and we're going to go put this ring in, in the mountain and we're going to see all these different um, places in Middle Earth. This movie says or the stand is going to take place in three places and you're never going to see them go anywhere. And people magically just appear um, wherever they need to be, depending on what the story demands. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is like if, uh, if you were telling Lord of the Rings and they leave the Shire and then the next cut they're, they're in Rivendell and you're just <laughs> yeah. like, well, wait, what? And, and they all have like, and the fellowship is already formed and they're heading out of Rivendell. Like, you're like, wait a minute. You just met what, what this is a, a road trip movie, a journey movie or journey story. You know, it's kind of the, the stand at its best is, is letting you languish in that, in that world, which is one of the reasons why I didn't um, 
particularly care for the Josh Boone uh, miniseries that he did because that's also the parts that he cut out. Like the, it seems like for whatever reason, the instinct, whether or not it's mandated by studio notes or, or, or if it's a creative decision by the, uh, the showrunner or, or uh, you know, screenwriter, uh, it seems like that that's what they cut out. And to me, that's the thing that, that makes the stand interesting is in living in that world and tra- traversing that world, which is gone and turned and, and, you know, and there's danger around every corner, but, you know, it, you know, but you see the, the new remnants of uh, the civilization that was, and, you know, that feeling of, of, you know, kind of just walking through, you know, what used to be a bustling city or a, a town and it's just empty and devoid. Like that is, that that feeling and that tone is why you would want to make the stand. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, that McGarris got very right, you know, and that you get that feeling after the shit goes down, you know, of these lost people kind of wandering and looking and searching for in, any humanity. And sometimes they find good humanity. Sometimes they find bad humanity, but you know, they, it's all about drawing together. You know what I mean? And you, when you cut that part out of it, in favor of in the Josh Boone version in favor of like doing more like small town building boulder politics or uh, you know, in this version of just getting, you know, the, the entire book done and, and uh, a two hour, 13 minute movie or whatever uh, you just lose kind of the essence of what the fucking story is. And yeah. I just don't get the instinct like to that. That would be like saying, I want to adapt, you know, Stephen King's it, but I don't want to have anything to do with a clown. Like to me, the whole reason of doing it is, is, you know, is to explore that, you know, that, uh, early post-apocalyptic empty world. It's, it's a meditation on the American spirit right? and how that spirit is reflected, um, back to you by the topography, Mm. by the, by your environment, right? Mm -hmm. America was the frontier and and the first settlers here saw America untouched and were were moved right. by that beauty, right? This is incredible. There's no civilization here. There's no society. And then we built it. And then the, the stand says, like, what if we strip all of that away? What does America mean without all of that? And so right. the idea of Boulder and Vegas are these two polar opposites of what America could be or needs to be or wants to be. And if you don't make that geography, um, makes sense. If it isn't paramount to the way that you tell the story, you might as well not tell the story. It's not just about the conversations um, between the free zone people and, and, and who's going to do what and how they're going to solve this problem. It's not really about that. It's, it's about some ineffable quality that we all are born into as Americans and, and, and what, is, what is our intention with, for the world. And it's not all verbal. It's not all intellectual. It's spiritual. It's a very spiritual story. Yeah. And all of that is gone from this. (laughs) Even though you have Tom Brokaw like reciting Bible verses, um, it doesn't matter. It still doesn't work. I always have a hard time talking about the stand. Anytime we've, we've covered the stand on the show, I find myself like struggling to, you know, get my hands around it. It's it's so sprawling and large like and and it, it and maybe it's because it's self-contained. It's one book. I don't have that problem with the Dark Tower. You know, I can talk about Dark Tower. It's all in blue in the fucking face. And that's, you know, 
seven, eight books, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, this, this is a single volume. Uh, but I, a, I always struggle to talk about it because it's like, I don't even know where to start with it kind of. And the other thing is that, well, it's been compounded by this screenplay because now it's, it is the stand somewhat technically like it removes so much and is so messy in, in what it does do that. It's like recognizable that it's supposed to be a stand script, but it's, it's very far off the mark. And that's like added an extra layer of <clears throat> like confusion to my end. Like I'm just bewildered by this and I'm really not sure how to like where to even begin, like how to structure right. this conversation. Dave is very succinctly put what he just said beautifully stated but do we start with like the characters or do we start with <laughs> the stuff that was removed or the stuff that was added like this I is um maybe start we start yeah and maybe we start with the point of view in the fact that uh the main character in this is probably larry underwood right yeah I don't, it starts with Stu and it starts with a gas, you know, station getting the, you know, what you'd imagine with the gas station, you know, in Texas getting the, the, the dude that escaped the virus thing and meeting Stu Redman. But Larry Underwood's the one that we probably spend the most time with, even though it jumps from character to character, um, which is just, it's kind of a, a baffling choice. It, it, this thing just can't decide whether to be an ensemble or, or have a main character with an arc. And I think that they're trying to make, Larry, the main character, because he's the guy that starts off as the asshole and then ends the hero. Right. Um, and but I, I don't know. It just doesn't work. He's just this fucking he's he's a son of a bitch that goes and instantly like his mom dies in front of him in the hospital in the script. And they instantly have him meet Nadine in not Nadine. Um, fuck. What, what's Rita. Her name? Or, Rita. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do they she's instantly have there. have meet? Yeah, meet Rita, and then she, they, they instantly go, "Oh, you know what? I want to fuck you." And he goes, "Okay, let's fuck." It, like even after he just cursed God and was like, "Oh my God, I'm you know I'm fuck fuck this and and my fucking mom's dead and I'm an asshole." And and then then he's like, "Oh, hey, hot girl, hot woman," who they have to underline to make sure we know she's fifty and old as fuck, but she's still hot, you know, well maintained. Um, I think is maybe well maintained. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I yeah. I, I so, there, so there's something in the point of view where I, I think it's just I, not comfortable I, spro- jumping from character to character. Yeah. To your point, um, yeah. I think it's worth noting that actually Larry is introduced in Malibu telling a woman, quote, your mouth's good for one thing and it's not talking. That's how yep. we meet Larry. Then yep. the mom shit, then the shit with Nate, like he is. Yeah, you're uh, not a good guy. He goes to visit his mom back in yeah, New York. There's a Once whole again, like, jumping across sequence. the entire country. Yeah. Yeah, with like a, a Russian mobster or something. Yeah, with, yeah. With he owes him money, and that's why he goes on the lamb to go back to yeah. Manhattan. Which, I, which I think is all in the book as well. Like it is, he, yeah. he owes. Is he owes I don't remember yeah. that part then. Yeah, yeah he, he owes he owes leg breakers some some money. Uh, yeah, in, in the book, and that's kind of why he's 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 on the the run. Yeah, you know, I was gotcha. saying I was staying up late last night thinking about this after having consumed it and immediately wanting to throw it back up. Um, I think one of the things that stand adaptations always get wrong, or at least that I would not do if I was adapting mm. this, is to start at the gas station. Mm. I almost don't care. When you think about what matters, it is not 
the actual machinations of the pandemic, right? The right. super the super flu is irrelevant. So you don't want to see the lab stuff either? I don't give a fuck about the lab. I like stuff. the lab shit though. It's cool, but if you had to cut stuff, right? If you're if you have a a studio executive offering you 50 million dollars to to go make the stand as a movie and you're like I need the money, I'm going to say yes even though this is like uh you know, uh, offering to run uh, as a Republican against Trump <laughs> in a presidential uh, primary. It's a it's a losing battle. Um, you take it because you need, you need the money. So what do you do? What is the solution to the problem of a thousand page book that you have to make into a two hour film? All of the stuff before the journey begins is good for a book, but it, does it work as a for a movie when all of these military characters and all this stuff just kind of fades away and you start to see what the story was really about. Okay. So you're pitching that the ideal version of this, if it was a feature film would begin with all the, all the pieces already in place on the board. And we just start following <laughs> Stu. Maybe, um, I don't know. Is Stu still like, uh, I confined by the government when we meet him? No, he's already escaped. And I think you start with his vision. That's the first scene is him hmm. having his dream. And That's then you cut to all of these other people having the same dream. And it's this collective melange of, of illusion in their head and this <clears throat> need to go somewhere. And so you and get I suppose these, that throughout yeah. this, you're, you're kind of picking up con via context clues the, that a plague has wiped everybody out. Exactly. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm on board with that. It's a visual thing, right? Yeah. The stand is a literary piece but it is, it is evocative, and the language paints a picture for you. You can explain stuff visually, and I think this gets it wrong where it has to explain everything. I think the Josh Boone miniseries, because they had the luxury of however many episodes it was, let's stretch it out, let's have all the stuff, let's make it um, as, as faithful to the book as we possibly can in 2022 or 21 or whenever it came out. And the, the, the original miniseries, same thing. It's like... Let's get let's cut to the chase. You know what I thought about a lot when I was reading this and when I think about the stand is lost. Lost mm -hmm. is a story where all of these disparate people come together and you learn little pieces about them as you go through the crisis. Right. And then you learn more and more about them through flashbacks or through actions or, or inactions or reactions to things. And that that fuller picture of these people, these stereotypes. Because all the people on Lost were basically stereotypes, right? They're just like, you know, versions of characters you've seen before and you learn more about them. It's the same thing here. These are archetypes. Right. You don't need to see Larry in Malibu getting his getting threatened by the Russian guy. You don't right. need to see Stu at the gas station listening to the radio. Um, I just don't think it's necessary. And you spend 40 pages on this before you get everybody together. And it's just such a waste maybe but I, what i would fight back is that well, mm -hmm. what happens and we see this in the script is that they they just you then clunkily have to explain in dialogue certain things like there's the instead of seeing say the you know the escape of the virus at the beginning we have that military guy fucking for no reason whatsoever telling Stu, and then this is what happened and then he did this and then he did that and this is how we did it and it's all america's fault 
Like he none of that matters. That none of that matters, Eric. <laughs> but, That's my point. Who gives but, a shit? It's backstory. I, I I will say that like now after having the world has had to survive its own pandemic, you know, in mm-hmm. recent times, people know how people react when when things are breaking out. But I think at the time you kind you want to see the world reacting to this like i don't i think it might be a little too traumatic to like once again show the world reacting to poorly to a, a, a an outbreak like this you under uh, you understand now, that but- dave's not pitching this as like the ideal version of the stand it's if you had to do it as a feature yeah if you had no choice well, you strip it down um the walking dead pilot is another example of something where yeah. all the shit that happens doesn't matter you just want to you want to be with the hero waking up and seeing oh my god what what the fuck happened and the question is so tantalizing but the question is not really um pertinent to the story of the stand america releasing this virus means nothing when you're thinking about what is this what is the the true stakes here it is boulder versus vegas it is good versus evil it is selfishness versus community Mm. And all of that could be left aside. And 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 there's there's a, a version of this story that doesn't have all of the depth, the backstory, but still works as a narrative. I agree that you could I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree that that would probably be a smart way to to try to go about doing it. Um but then what about the other nine hundred pages of the novel? You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's not like it's the problem is just the first 40 pages of this script. It's right. Everything has been hemmed up to a degree that it's it, well, it's like blue. Like if I went and saw this movie in a theater expecting to see the stand on screen, this would be like the worst case of cinematic blue balls I could imagine. It's like it's <laughs> yeah. like a, a, a hint of stand, you know, it's but it's not the fucking stand. Diet stand. Um, yeah. Well, why don't we talk a little bit then about like what is missing from this? Because I feel like no one's no one should read this. If you want to, God bless you, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. But for the vast majority of listeners, they're never going to read this fucking thing. Yes, right. And nor, so, like, nor should they. No. So what is what is missing? Well, I think I think it was Eric touched on this before, um, or maybe it was you, Dave. But you know the the sense of geography is all fucked. And having these uh, lulls in the overall plot line where people are traveling between points and having their own encounters along the way, or, you know, they're developing their relationships during that time or people are being betrayed. You know, it's like the stand, you could probably tell the stand in, I'm going to say 12 bullet points for like the main things that happen in this. But then in between those, that's where like all the, all the the traveling and exploring and uh, character the personality, yeah, yeah, of, of yeah. The story is, yeah. Um, all of that is just stripped mind out of it. It's just I couldn't fucking believe it when that that was how they introduced Franny and 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 Harold. Like right. it's just so clumsy. They they literally just come stumbling into a fucking scene, and it's like, well, here we are now. Yeah, and you um, don't really get a sense of their dynamic. No, or, or they try to do it where it's like, oh, yeah, he's kind of a dweeb and she's his, you know, favorite girl in the whole world and he's in love with her. But you never see them actually interact without Stu around. Right. Right. So then it's just like, who is this fucking geek? Get him out of here. Obviously, Franny and Stu are in love and let us move on. 
Right. Instead of the dynamic that was supposed to be at play. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's the main, the, I mean, there's lots of like pieces and set pieces and obviously there's no, thank God there's no, the kid and there's no, uh, you know, oh, Lord. That, that stuff. But what, what we're missing in, in these moments when they're just jumping and we're missing these quiet scenes is we're missing the character development. I mean, yep. beyond everything. So everybody just feels like a caricature, you know, everybody is so broad and it has to state, you know, their thoughts and intentions because we don't have time to actually see that come out in action, you know? So everybody's just constantly, saying this is what I am thinking and feeling right now because I have to say it because there's no other way to show it. You know, I mean, more than anything, uh, I mean, I'm trying to like think of, of giant like sequences that are, that, that are missing. And I mean, pretty much, I mean, the Lincoln tunnel sequence sequences in there. Yeah. Um, so you, you get, you get that, but I mean, you're getting all the beats. You're just getting the truncated, version of it I, they they like fold a lot of characters into you know together so like uh kojak right the dog the dog shows yeah. up but you know the old professor you know isn't isn't there you know it's like you know there's there's a there's a whole bunch of things that they do to to streamline it um but i'm 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 really struggling to think of like oh my god that that moment was one of my favorites and and it's not in in the script there is they almost always touch upon some version of it or they fold two of those scenes together or whatnot, but they're is the, is the yeah. harem in it. When they the rescue them from the, no, in the, in the script, I can't I, remember if they're, they like rescue them from the harem or not. No, because the, 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 I think that's where the, um uh, they, they hijack they or they show up. Uh, those characters show up at and hold up uh, Stu and Franny and Harold. Yeah, they just right? show and up. They just show up and say, "Do you dream of the walking dude, or do you dream of the of Mother Abigail?" And they're like, "Oh, you dream of Mother Abigail." They're like, "Okay, these guys are all right." And then, like instantly, the next page, they're like, "Hey, so uh, I <laughs> once again, like, hey, we want to you want to start uh, seeing who's available amongst the men folk here." <laughs> yeah, you know? it's immediate. Like, um, my favorite- every single time. My favorite introduction of a character or characters (laughs) is Nick and Tom. They're like in like a department store. And then Julie's like, hi, I'm Julie. I would like to have sex with one of you. That is not a direct (laughs) quote, but that is basically like what happens. And I took a Uh, note too. uh, They, you know how there's always the character description, right? Yeah. The character description for Julie Lowry is a sexy 17 year old. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, And, and yeah, that's exactly what happened. She's like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm horny. I want to fuck. I got a bag full of condoms, baby. And she grabs Nick's hand and Nick goes, okay, let's do it. And they go off and they have sex. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. Nick Nick is like the pure, like the innocent (laughs) answer. That's the innocent. Yeah. Of the story. And he goes and fucks her. And then they like post coitally, they both dream about, uh, the walking dude and uh, Nick runs away and runs towards mother Abigail. And she goes, Ooh, this guy's sexy. Yeah. I will kill, kill Nick and, and his, his buddy, Tom. Yeah. It's like, it, yeah. it's misogynistic in like, in a way that is very revealing about the person that wrote it. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not just about like the sexuality of any of the female characters, but in addition to that, they are also like their intelligence is constantly being called into question or being clarified as though we needed to have it clarified. Right. Um, like for instance, that I pulled up the screen cap I sent y'all yesterday when we were all bitching about this. 
This is Nadine <laughs> meeting Larry for the first time, listeners. Nadine, of course, Mr. Larry ra- raises and offers his hand. Larry. Larry Underwood. Nadine. Nadine Cross. Larry and Nadine shake hands. She is college educated. What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, why do we need to know how? What? Like, what? Well, huh? Well, yeah, it's so like, and and then on top of that, it's like, uh, the word bitch is used so much in this fucking script. You know, <laughs> yeah. probably as often as the the writer uh, goes out of his way to point out that a female character is in heels, which is. Uh, More or less every fucking scene fe- featuring a woman. Why you know? did you stop for sneakers? Larry says as they're running away from muggers. Yeah, Just as stop I, for sneakers. Come on, dude. As, as I pointed out to y'all yesterday, like the 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 funniest part of this for me was like clocking the thing that was going on with the heels, where he like kept bringing uh-huh. it up, uh-huh. and then finally getting to a part where he described a character as um, being she was wearing spandex, obviously, uh, and. Uh, it's like she's wearing spandex and open-toed, and I was like, or open-toed shoes, and I was like, oh great! And then I finished the sentence and said, with heels, like fucking, <laughs> he, <laughs> like he couldn't even give this woman a pair of sandals without like compulsively <laughs> adding heels to them. Well, she's it's a lady, incredible, obviously. Um, yeah, it's it's so clear in the behavior of the women, the way they're described, that there's a lot of misogyny in this. And I said this earlier off, off mic, that a lot of the stuff, you know, the, the actions of the characters are in the book, right? This is, this is not like outrageous to add these things. They're not added. These, these things happen. You know, the, the rape scene in the desert where uh, the, the walking right. dude impregnates, um, Nadine, Nadine. Yeah, exactly. That's in the book. Yep. Well, what this script did is take all of that stuff and strip out any of the context, the any of the, <laughs> the um, actual yeah. like drama or the character um, the, development, right. the, the nuance, nuance any, anything. Yeah. It's all gone, and it's just like wow. This it makes you think Stephen King is the worst motherfucker on the planet because <laughs> he came up with this stuff, but he's telling a story about you know misogyny and sexual violence and these kinds of things. Uh, it's just that that wasn't apparent to the writer of this film. He just thought it was cool stuff to put in a movie. And and you think this is the draft that uh, that Romero uh, was attached to? Is that that the thought here? I can't that is what I Romero read. responding to this. I just because, because Romero and Stephen King had been trying to get the stand off the ground since like 1980. Um, and, uh, they had gone through multiple versions of it and throughout the years, like you'd read interviews with either one of them and the stand would come up because it was a big title and, you know, they worked together on Creepshow and whatnot, but they worked on Creepshow because they couldn't get the stand going. Right. It was just too big of a story. And, and then there's like, we're going to make it for TV, but then they realized eighties TV wasn't gonna, wasn't going to let them do what they wanted to do. So they kept going back to the movie thing. Um, I I had assumed that they were kind of over and done with this by this time, by the time this was written. Uh, but I can, yeah, but like Scott, you know, you, like you just said, I can't imagine Romero looks at this and goes, yep, this is it. You know, I mean, I, I know that there's gotta be a whole other angle that, you know, and we have to acknowledge that, that if this was, you know, being, uh, uh, aimed at a studio or whatnot, the studio would have notes and the studio would was probably telling them, Hey, you got to, you know, 
cut this shit down. You got to focus on this, this, and this. There's probably, I'm not going to excuse what he did, but I, you know, maybe there is, there is some extenuating circumstances there, but I just can't imagine Romero looking at this going after 10 years of developing this, this is the one that I want to do. You I know? don't think anyone would look at this and say, this is good. There is right. nothing good about it. Yeah. It is all terrible. We interrupt this beat down on poor old Rospo Pallenberg to talk about Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. We've had Factor in the mid-roll here a few times before. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming back, Factor. We appreciate it. Uh, and we appreciate it because we actually like the stuff you make. We do mm-hmm. have a little bit of a rule here where we're not going to include stuff uh, in, in a mid-roll that we're not at least interested in. And Factor very kindly sent both Scott and I some ready to eat meal kits and uh yes. i ate i ate through mine in a week i think scott you said you you're slowly doling them out yeah over... i've still yeah i've still got a few in there but uh what i have tried has been fantastic i was surprised and you know and i know that this sounds like uh paid chill talk but like legitimately this stuff's really good uh i i kind of got it and i was like oh really it's gonna be like a tv dinner kind of situation here it's not mm-hmm. one of those meal kits where they send you like all the ingredients and you make it yourself and i was like okay well we'll see how how this goes and uh no shit it was some of the freshest tasting uh stuff that i've that i've had the chicken actually tasted like i made it myself it didn't taste like that microwavable chicken crap that you get i was kind of floored by how how good these these meals were so if you have a crazy hectic life uh, or if you're just lazy like i am and you don't want to make multiple trips to the grocery store or even order you know all the ingredients and then you know have to prepare them and make them yourself then i would try out factor you get a week's worth of delicious high quality meals that will be ready to eat after just a few minutes in the microwave Uh, and they're healthy too obviously like all these meal services you can uh, tailor what you like and they will send that to you but i noticed even like the veggies that they sent me were liberally buttered so they tasted delicious Uh, but you can get whatever you want if you want high protein low calorie or just whatever tastes the best their staff will tailor their meals for you and send it right to your door and guess what if you go to factorymeals.com slash kingcast50 and use the code kingcast50 when you place your order you get 50% off of your meal that's half off baby that's the kingcast discount for the ages that's code kingcast50 at factormeals.com slash kingcast50 to get 50% off now with all that said I think it's time to get back to that (laughs) beatdown I read a lot of scripts just as a matter of, of like for entertainment, really. Um, I'll read stuff before I've actually seen the movie. I'll, you know, I like chasing down a script for something that's hard to find. You know, that's like, that's been a hobby of mine for fucking many years, you know, and I've read a ton of unproduced shit. And the, the only other time I've ever seen a script this bad based on like something, uh, something that would be like a prestige picture just in terms of the number of people that you'd have to fucking cast it with and, you know, the budget and all that kind of stuff based on a very popular piece of literature. Uh, The only other time I've seen one approaching this level of bad was uh, fucking what's his name? Vespi, what's that fucking guy's name we don't like? Akiva Uh, Goldsman? Yes, Akiva Goldsman. Uh, his draft, I, I'd love that you knew exactly who I was fucking talking about. <laughs> yeah, of course. His, his draft of Dr. Sleep was just mm, oh boy. awful. And, oh and I remember being like, well, 
I didn't really like the book Dr. Sleep. I really mm. like what Flanagan did with Dr. Sleep. You know, that's why I love that version of it. Uh, but I remember reading it and being like, well, bad. You know, I didn't like the book. So why would I like this movie? And Akiva Goldsman also sucks. So so I kind of mm. figured like, you know, it, it didn't feel as egregious as this. Like it was legit shocking to see how like slipshod and just amateurish this thing was. That, yeah. Like how on earth would anyone like a student? I was imagining like a studio exec reading this and like weighing, mm, do I want to spend, you know, $50 million or whatever they would have done back then to bring it to life? Like no one would want to fucking make this. A fucking mm-hmm. is like an eighth grader wrote it. This yeah. is like the Lloyd Kaufman version of the stand, essentially. <laughs> yeah. In terms of like the way people interact with each other and the, and the level of quality. Um, I, I also like reading, um, as you two do, unproduced screenplays. And I think in my career and my time in Hollywood, the two that have made the most impact on me were the Escape from New York remake that was at New Line uh, when I was working there. And it was uh, Lynn Weissman attached to direct it. Oof. Who Ooh, did Underworld Christ. and famously got cucked by Michael Sheen. Um, <laughs> and that one was boring, right? Like it's it's it was professional. Right. It made sense. It took the basic framework of the original and kind of, you know, built upon that. It was just dull and it just felt like it didn't need to exist. And then the J.J. Abrams Superman movie. Oh, which right. was like, if you're yeah. of a certain age and you work in any part of show business, you've probably read it or heard about it or talked about it. It was I remember so Drew McQueenie. Oh, yes. writing about it. Uh, oh, yes. News back in the day and that being uh-huh. a big fucking deal. It was a huge deal. Yep. And I, I and, you know, I think everybody did their due diligence and ended up reading it because it was just everywhere on the Internet at, at a certain point. Once this the singer Superman became a thing. Right. And it was again, like JJ has so much talent. He's a, he's a, a great storyteller, but it was this insane. You're just like, why uh, is this happening? What why is are you this? making the choices you're making? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. you were flabbergasted by the decisions and the way that Superman was being adapted, where he was doing karate and <laughs> he goes back to Krypton because it hasn't exploded and Lex Luthor's a CIA agent that's going to be played by Johnny Depp and everything's wrong. Also, isn't his suit like a living being or something? Yeah, it's sort of like um, Doctor Strange's cape in that it's yeah. alive. <laughs> it can like float in midair without a body. And you're like, God damn it, you guys just, why? And you can you can feel the studio. Like, J.J. wasn't JJ at that point. And so I'm sure it was just like, here are the nine things that we want out of Superman. And you're like, okay, I get how this got fucked up, but it's still a professional screenplay. This is like, that's why I started feeling like, what is the provenance of this? And can we believe that this was really a professional screenplay? But I'm, (laughs) I'm a hundred percent sure. That somehow got uploaded at some point. Yeah, somebody was just like, I want to write a movie version of The Stand and I'm going to pretend it was written by this incredibly obscure screenwriter who never made anything good. Remember when uh, it it like made a splash for like five seconds until people actually saw it? There was that dude that like uh, crowdfunded his own like three million dollar Spider-Man like movie or short film or something. 
he like he built it up built it up and then like didn't deliver for like a year and a half and this is like this is the what real fans want to see you know that's what the sell was and then they then he finally released it and, and everybody fucking just laughed at it yeah. uh, that's what this is like if you told me that this screenplay was written by uh an incel uh twitter <laughs> shit poster <laughs> who, uh, you know, who has a Joker avatar, I would have believed you instantly. Cause it's just, that's the, it, it's, it's that kind of stereotypical. I know how to make a movie. I know how to make stories. This is what people want to see. They want to see ladies getting their clothes ripped off during a chase scene because, you know, we'll distract the people chasing us by throwing your blouse at them. It's like, you know, it's like it, it's that same mindset, you know, it was childish. Um, it was childish. Yeah. yeah, there's a scene toward the end when they're in Vegas and Dana t- like shows her breasts to distract the pilot of the F-16 and he has to eject <laughs> from the plane. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I saw boobs. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, boy. Oh, God, this stinks. Um, yeah, it reminds me of. Not the Spider-Man one, but you remember the Batman short film that came out in like 2006? Batman. Uh, I think that's with yeah, yeah. Andy Cholera, <laughs> right? Yeah. Where he fights yeah. Predator or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was like, as you said, with the Spider-Man thing. Oh, finally, somebody gets it. This is so gritty and sick. And then you realize <laughs> that you don't want that for two hours. Yeah. It's right. a cool idea for Batman to fight the Predator in the rain. But then like, all right, let's move on. From that, and right. this is two hours of. Wouldn't it be cool if this happened? I, I think that the main. I mean, the, there's there's lots of main problems here. There's multiple main problems with the screenplay, but you know, I think so much of it is just the whole throwing the stand in a blender and fast forwarding through the story, which is honestly, it's kind of what they fucking got wrong with uh, Dark Tower as well, and. In a, yes. in this script actually reminded me a lot of reading the Jeff Pinkner Akiva Goldsman draft of Dark Tower too, uh, where I was reading it going, why that choice? Why like uh, again, all the beats are there, you know? But it's like, why would you fucking do this? Uh, maybe it's just has something to do with Randall Flagg. People just can't get Randall Flagg or any version of Randall Flagg slash the Man in Black or whatever on screen right or, or on a in a screenplay correctly i don't fucking know uh like this one we, we mentioned randall flag we should probably talk about randall flag a little bit here uh they never mentioned as far as i remember they never mentioned his name at all they just call him the walking dude the whole time couple times couple times they call him randall flag randall in in the in vegas yeah yeah um, almost begrudgingly like, it's so few times that it's like you almost feel like the the fucking writer had a problem with the name Randall Flag. Was like, uh-huh. I'll put it in there once or twice, but that's it, man. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the character, the character, slug, the dialogue lines, the character uh, dialogue line or slug lines or whatever the fuck you call them. It's all the walk. It's always the walking dude, and everybody. More people refer to him as the dude or dude versus versus Randall Flag, the big and boss. He's also, he's also or, more explicitly cowboyish. Yeah, the, the sexy cowboy. Sexy. That's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the problem with how yeah. you visualize this guy right it's it's a little bit of manson it's a little bit of oh god what did king say like the 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 guy who kidnapped patty hearst all these charismatic Mm. figures right and it's it's nearly impossible to articulate that in a movie the ineffable quality of charisma or or control it's it's immediately 
you go to, well, he's got tight jeans and he, and he wears cowboy boots and he's got long hair and he's Matthew McConaughey and he's cool. Like, yeah. that's not enough. When you think about the people that this character was based on, they were dirty. They were kind of confused. Um, they were prone to megalomania. Um, they weren't a swaggering movie star. So if, if somebody says, I want to play Randall Flagg in a movie... They're going to want to do this kind of like Jim Morrison thing, uh-huh. which is not what's scary about the character. I think about um, Keith Ranieri, the guy who did Nexium. Yes. Not charismatic, not cool, not sexy, but he controlled people somehow. He got them to do things that were against their best interest. Donald Trump is not cool or sexy. He just does things that people find appealing because of some quality that we can't understand. If we were able to understand the psychology of a narcissist, our world would be a better place because we would all avoid them constantly, but we can't see it when it's happening. So for Randall to just be evil all the time and twirling his mustache and walking around with his, his fucking tight jeans, it just doesn't, it doesn't click as scary. It's a cartoon. It's a Batman villain. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of you know monkey business in here about him like turning him turning into a bird and like you know you know uh, the the way it's described like I understand that there there's some connotation with that in the book but it's the way it's described here is almost like he like he can put out his hands and like a bird will emerge you know that kind of thing like by flapping his hands together or some shit it's, it's like, like joe it's bluth like, from arrested development <laughs> right when he yeah, does the thing with the banana maybe it plays in the book but it does not play in in the screenplay of like mm. oh i made your knife into a banana <laughs> oh, <laughs> it sucks. it's some doctor who ass shit it's bad <laughs> but that that element of him like you know there's the it's also in the book, but here as well, I, I guess I think my, I'm, what I'm saying is the way it's portrayed. It makes it seem like Randall Flagg has a number of spirit animals that he can deploy at a at a moment's notice. And it's described in the cheesiest possible fashion. I mean, yeah. I'm, I was imagining like what what would this have looked like if someone had to go shoot it in 1990? And it would have been the most embarrassed, skin crawlingly embarrassing thing, I think of that period. I think the one thing that they pull off with that, that I thought was kind of cool was I think he makes a bird appear and then it flies through a guy's chest and then he yeah. falls off, off, off. Frame. Yeah. Yeah. I thought yeah, that would have been kind of neat. Hands yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. How do you pull that off? Um, it, oh God. When he levitates Nadine so that he can touch her tummy I thought that would have looked terrible. It would have been like Ghostbusters when <laughs> yeah, um, and a lot Dana of stuff Barrett about him walking above the pavement for some reason and it sounding squishy, like like he's no. levitating, but it sounds like he's walking in like mud. Right. I get, I gathered like it's I, almost too much, right? Like the character's mystery is gone. Okay, he's some sort of fucking dark wizard, and he does all this crazy shit. So of course you're gonna follow him. He's got these superpowers, and nobody mm. else in the in the, the fucking script has superpowers well hold on a second because that is that is a thing that comes up when they're they're like the the leo character the little kid is psychic yep 
Um, and they so mentioned that's kind of superpowers. Yeah, but well, that's downplayed so much. There's a bunch of psychic characters in the book, right? Like, doesn't Nick have some psychic power and he projects himself after he dies or all kinds of stuff like that? You know, Eric. Kind of, like, well, I mean, that's more in the the religious angle of it. Yeah. Where, you know, the 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 light being of light, the God or whatever of the story is like sending visions and stuff. But like this one, they actually go so far. And it, it it's hilarious to me. I had to reread this two or three times to make sure I didn't miss something. But whenever... Like they they say, oh Leo can see things, and somebody goes, he has the shining. Oh yeah, and I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I was like, is it? And I'm like, I scroll back, I'm like, did I miss like you know somebody mentioning that or mentioning the movie existing or the book existing or or <laughs> somebody previously? He's like, he he shines to things, so he has the shining. It's okay. like what? Warner Brothers <laughs> had the rights. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> incredible. Um, is there anything in this story that or in this uh, screenplay that we read? Um that you thought they did, he did well. Do you think that there's anything? Cause I, I can think of one idea that, uh, that he puts into this, this writing that I actually kind of like, um, uh, that hasn't been done in any other adaptations as far as I can remember. Um, and I'm wondering if any of those, if anything jumped out for you, you gents, but I'll, I'll I can start with mine if you want. Um, yeah, yeah go please for it. do because I've got none. I hated everything. <laughs> I got one. I got a little I, baby one. I really like, the concept of essentially Mother Abigail and um, uh, Randall Flagg sharing the same dream world, whereas mm-hmm. in most adaptations they either dream of the man, uh, the walking dude, or they dream of Mother Abigail. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I like here is that that the forces of evil are trying to in in the dreams are constantly trying to pull the characters away from Mother Abigail. Right. And that they'll it's not that like, oh, I choose Mother Abigail and everything's happy. It's like they'll make it to her front porch and then a fucking wolf man thing will jump in and like pull pull them away and try to drag them away while whispering like, I'll give you everything you want. You know, I thought that that was actually a pretty neat thing where you you get a, a more dynamic uh, uh you know, tug between the light and the dark there. And I, and I don't think it's executed particularly well, but like that was one part of the screenplay where I'm like, well, that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting addition. Cause in the book, most of it is that is like how it's adapted. There are a couple of times where like, you know, the mother, mother Abigail will point to the rats in the corn or whatever. And, and that'll be the Randall flag um, presence. But like, I do like how like flag is directly trying to pull, literally pull them away from the light in the uh, in, in a lot of the dream sequences. It's a good idea, Eric. Yeah. The problem is the execution. Oh, because <laughs> every single character is either incredibly evil, <laughs> You're right, or super naive and kind. Yeah, and there is no like Harold is the only character that has any sort of like pull. Right, he's the but that's traditionally the case. You know, he's sort mm. of seduced. Um, through sexuality to kind of be a bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. But, Nadine to a, to a lesser extent, but yeah, sure. Nadine really wanting <clears throat> answers and thinking Mother Abigail can give give them to her. Um, yeah, but in this script, it really doesn't. There, there's nothing like that. Like there's there's none of right. those shades of gray to make it feel like it is a battle. But I do like the idea, like you like you said, of this yeah. kind of push and pull and 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 the war of ideas. 
um, not necessarily the war of ideas in, in, you know, a conference room, like a Star Trek, the next generation episode where they're kind of debating something, which is, I think sort of what the Josh Boone miniseries got stuck on was all of that chit chat. But like this idea that we are constantly at war with ourselves and, and our better instincts are sometimes, um, flattened by our, our selfishness or our desire. Um, the thing that I did enjoy somewhat was the third act. You can't really mm. fuck that up. <laughs> you know, it's like a big set piece. Um, there's the big ball of energy and there's uh, the, the trash can the, man yeah, comes in with the trash bomb. Can yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's, you can't help but kind of enjoy that. Um, and it's done well enough in, in Larry's sort of sacrifice in the way that he inspires everyone kind of almost works if the movie wasn't garbage before that. Uh, right. It was just so terrible, but just, you know, I think this was a decent version of that, that kind of climactic moment in the, in the story. Although you do get that awkward ass fucking scene where Randall flag is like, Oh, well that sucks. Here's the God ball going to detonate the bomb. I'm, but I'm going to just phase out. Don't worry about it. And, <laughs> yeah. He knows like, out hey. of the film. Well, and Nadine's like, Hey, you forgot something. And she like, forcibly like removes her fucking demon baby or whatever oh yeah don't you want your demon baby and she like punches her belly and then apparently just yanks it out (laughs) yeah alive and mewling and it says dada by the way Um, (laughs) can you imagine that the special (laughs) effect like the whatever the sort of like sub stan winston effect that would have been oh my lord looks something like quato from fucking total recall (laughs) okay that's kind of sick i love quato at best um and but but and to make that ridiculous scene even more ridiculous like he does the like oh maybe i oh you almost tricked me nah uh -uh," and then he fades out (laughs) again i i don't know there's just something so fucking ridiculous and undercutting all the drama of of him losing his uh you know his hold on everybody and and having the you know everything he ever wanted but like letting his hubris get in his way like all the really fun meaty stuff of that finale is just totally undercut by that ridiculous bullshit right at the end oh yeah there's no character beats except i think i think larry's redemption sort of almost kind of works you know them tempting him with the concert and him being Mm. uh willing to sacrifice himself I think it's, a, it's like if you squint, it's kind of like, oh, there could be a good scene in this. Right. But you're right. It, it blows ass. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, um, I've, I, you know, I've been like kind of looking through the screenplay as as we've been talking for uh, I'm sorry, you know, any discussion topics now. Um, and I was thinking uh, I, I stopped on a page a little while ago that um I think to illustrate just how shitty the dialogue is here, we mm. should maybe do a live reading of a page from from the script. Oh, okay. Ooh, ooh, who am I um, going to play? Uh, well, Dave, I would like you to play uh, the walking dude. Fantastic. The part I was Vespi, made. I would like you to play Lloyd, and I will narrate. Okay, what page hold on. Are we pull, on? You are going to the here. end of page forty. Okay. Uh, exterior, small town road, Arizona, before sunset. Okay, page forty. Oh yeah, here it is. Okay. Let's Cut do two. this. Exterior, small town, road, Arizona, before sunset. Slurping through a straw, Lloyd Henry finishes a carton of chocolate milk. He quickens his pace to catch up with the walking dude who heads west into the setting sun. The walking dude's boots clock on the asphalt. His face is against the glare. Lloyd tags alongside, a quarter of a step behind. Lloyd. Master, tell me more. 
I rode shotgun on Charles Manson's dune buggy. Wow. Then I went into politics to stir up trouble. I could even pass for black. But but something weird would happen. When I spoke at rallies, the microphone screamed with wild feedback. Circuits would blow. That's real weird. It's a weird place. Here. But things are changing. Hey, Lloyd, can you taste it? There's magic in the air. The magic of once of a time before history returns to Earth. All this sudden dying. They pass bodies in the street and inside stalled cars. It's labor pains. And I'm being reborn. Now I can really come into my own. Now I will be everyone's dream come true. Or, here's the thing, their worst nightmare. How fucking insane is that? (laughs) (laughs) Who's he talking to? What, did Lloyd ask him about any of this? No, he's (laughs) just like, I was a politician once. I was black. And then, of course, he says, I rode in Charles Manson's dune buggy. Oh, yeah, he had a dune (laughs) buggy on Spawn Ranch, probably. He liked to putter around in, going from house to house, having sexual intercourse with various women. Um, It's so it's it's exposition that's not necessary. And -hmm. when you think about how long the story is and you're wasting your time on this, (laughs) Uh on this, why? Why are we doing this? See, Scott, when you said you were going to do a dramatic reading, I thought you were going to go like two scenes later, which is Larry finding Rita dead with the painkillers. And he no. and he literally says, God, hear me. I am an asshole. A fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Will Ferrell would have been great. <laughs> there, There's stretches of this that are Tommy Wiseau level of of like uh, of writing and character work. Yeah. Here. Uh, it Listen. is it is un believably bad and i went into this going oh i'm excited because i you know i've read a few drafts of various stand stuff i've never never read this one not not so excited uh 20 pages into it but uh so what you're saying is the anniversary episode this year is not going to be a live reading of the stand by rospo pollenberg <laughs> by rospo pollenberg no yeah we're gonna have to I, avoid a lot of the racial slurs and and, <laughs> right. and like it's gonna be kind of rough I, I th- the idea did occur to me at a certain point <laughs> in, while reading this of like of I wonder if you could like do this as a live read and make it fun and I just don't think it would be fun I think it's too it's too long and it would just be punishing because it's not a lot of it is just you know people talking tough at each other but it's not particularly funny you know there's right. there's stretches of it where you know it's particularly uh, poorly written. And and those kind of sing in a in a trashy kind of way, but mm-hmm. I don't think you could keep an audience's attention with this. You'd uh, have to take it so seriously, yeah, that it would be funny uh, by accident. I don't know. Right? Like mm-hmm. you can't do it and and make it like a joke. You have yeah. to play it naked gun, airplane, mm. straight, and then Her, people play- would find the humor in it. Yeah, the main character's playing it straight and then Flula Borg being the walking dude coming in talking about <laughs> right in Charles Manson's dune buggy. Do you guys want to gamble? I was on Charles Manson's dune buggy. <laughs> Are you carrying my demon child? Oh, thank you. I okay, now I'm in. I'm enjoying this. I want, it's labor pains and I'm being reborn. <laughs> That's fun. This is fun. 
Ah, it's something to consider. Uh, I think I think we'd get <laughs> you sued. Wanted. You you would have to. We wouldn't There's be able no to. Way. Re- wouldn't no, be able to record get, it. You wouldn't get sued. I don't know. Well, just send no. five bucks. We, yeah, we don't yeah. we don't have a lot of money to throw around. So if, we, if there was so. any sort of bullshit, we would. <laughs> my understanding is like if we did something like that, and I looked I looked into this at one point because I there was there was a point where I had an idea for an episode where we would um for a bonus episode where we would do a live reading of uh, Maximum King that Shea Hatton script that hit the blacklist some years ago. And I kind of poked around about that. And what I was told was that in like no uncertain terms that if we did something like that and it like say it was behind a paywall and people could fucking, you know, uh, it, it we were making money off of it, then, yeah, yeah. we would be in fucking hot water. Uh, yeah. But if you that, did a, like a charity donation to some some worthy cause, you could still do it. You just wouldn't be able to profit. You're right. So, we, yeah, we need a charity show. <laughs> and Ross Palenberg to die. Yeah, if he dies, what do you think Steve would think about this? Old Steve King, big SK. I, 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 I think he has a really healthy attitude towards the difference between, you know, the book and the movie. His attitude is kind of like, you know, hey, the book remains the book. Whether or not the movie is any good doesn't change anything I've done. Um, but I've got to assume that he read this and was like, absolutely fucking not. You know, yeah, you would imagine it's just such a, a a hack job of something that he clearly spent a lot of fucking time writing. Like I would, I would be furious to read this script if I had written this. Yeah. Can I ask a yeah. a bigger, uh-huh. broader question? Unless sure. we want to change the subject. I kind of gave you guys my soft pitch of how I would try to do this. At uh-huh. least you know the first thirty minutes. What would you guys do if you had to make this? It feels like it's like a Rorschach test for what you like about stories. The stand. How do you how do you approach this sprawling narrative and and what is important to you and what is not important mm-hmm. to you? Because we can see from the script that nothing about this story was important to Ross Bell Pollenberg. <laughs> all right. I would well, I would go I first of all, I think the Mick Garris version of the stand is really fucking good. And I think it holds no. up. Yeah. I think the version that I would make would look a lot like that, be structured a lot like that. It would have that amount of uh, runway to deal with in terms of episode numbers. And, you know, it'd be a mini series or a limited yeah. series. Um, but it would be free of the shackles of having been on ABC. Mm-hmm. Right. So you would have bad language in it. You would have more violence in it. It would be more like the R rated version of the stand that I would want to exist. Mm-hmm. That was right. sort of the appeal on the new one. You know, mm-hmm. that they could do whatever the fuck they wanted with it. And so you knew it was going to it would be R rated. And then they fucked that all up, you know, because uh, they, you know, manipulated the uh, the story to such a degree. But I I think Mick, Mick's version comes really close to that's yeah, that it the the sense of traversing geography and all the character work is in there. Um, I don't think you're ever going to get a version of it that gets everything. But that's that's as uh, still as as close as I think we will probably ever see to it. You're ducking in the question, Scott, because the question is not how would you make it as a miniseries? Mm-hmm. How would you do it as a movie? I refuse the question. I'm not doing okay. it. As a movie. All right. That's fair. I'll I, allow you to it's punch. such a fool's errand. I cannot imagine. Mm, it, cowardly. I'll say this. You could. Cowardly. If you did it as a trilogy, I can imagine it working. Yeah. Then, no, the, then, then pitch me on what, what are the three movies? Like, how do you break it well, up? Well, the first one gets you 
into the into most of the main characters have been introduced and it's them kind of navigating toward the apocalypse and then separating off into their camps. And then the second one goes all the way up to the bombing. Maybe. Yeah, that's smart. Um, the bombing is the big, the big. Yeah, that's the climax. Who died? Cliffhanger, you know, finding out who died in the in the third one. And then the yep. third one is the morning after through the end. Hmm. It's kind of Lord of the Rings. That could work. Yeah. yeah. Fellowship, I mean, Two Towers, and, yeah. and Return of the King. The I think that there's one movie, absolutely not. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think you could possibly get away with two with two movies um and finding the line in the middle, which is what they were planning on doing when at Warner Brothers when Ben Affleck was doing it. And yeah. whether or not the scripts would work, I'd I'd have to sit and think about it, you know, if that would work narratively, but I think if you have two movies and you have a studio willing to back somebody who they can't fuck with easily, like a Ben Affleck or, you know, like it kind of like how, um, let's say Platinum Dunes had a, a, uh, um, a reputation for being very hands on with their directors, but for a quiet place, they couldn't fuck with Krasinski, not because he was John Krasinski, you know, he was still a new director, but he came with a little bit of star power and then he brought Emily Blunt, right? And Emily Blunt was going to back her husband slash the director for the whole thing, their star. So they couldn't fuck with that. And guess what? They made the probably the best movie they ever produced, right? Yeah. So you need somebody with that power uh, to be able to shepherd because the only reason to do this, because uh, uh, Scott's right, the Mick Garris one has the tone and um and hits all the right beats and has some great performances the stuff that works the best is all the character relationship stuff which is the important thing to get right but you need to see the scale if you the only reason to readapt this is to show the scale in a way that they couldn't do at uh, abc and in order to do that you need a budget and in order to get the budget and not have it be some pg-13 trash that you know is just made by committee and it turns into the dark tower uh, adaptation again mm-hmm. you need somebody who the studio just can't fuck with a denny Villeneuve, or you know somebody who has the power uh to to push it through and i think affleck obviously he didn't have the power enough to get it made. But like, I think if they had pulled the trigger on the budgets, he would have been in a position at that point to be somebody they couldn't fuck with. And, and, you know, and I really like Affleck as a director and I think it would have been very interesting to see him take, you know, kind of his dour tone that that he's Mm -hmm. like, you know, shown in in his, uh, Oh, I guess the Argo is not dour, but you know what I mean? That kind of heaviness that he can bring to uh, stuff that he directs and, and bring that to this. And he also gives a shit about character. You know, I think that that's probably the best ideal way, like, or like obviously a prestige HBO kind of, kind of show with with the budget. Um, Either way it needs, they need to spend a lot of money, which is probably the reason why we're, that plus the Josh Boone thing kind of tanking on streaming. <laughs> um, uh, probably why we're not going to see the stand readapted for quite a bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you have to have somebody ideally that can be both the star, or not just both the star, but the star, the director, and an actor in it. Right. And Affleck could be a part of all three of those, and he would have been perfect. I do think the, the um, Paramount Plus or CBS All Access version yeah, really kind of like killed it. Like it, it it's never going to, there's not going to be one for a long time. 
another yeah, adaptation. You killed that. it for a generation, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and not that you know. And listen, I I don't like it very much, but it's not god awful. It's not no, like, not at all. This is the worst fucking thing I've ever seen. They get a lot of the character stuff right. I think the Harold Lauder in in that is is uh, was done mm-hmm. exceedingly well. I really liked what they did with Tom Cullen. And that, which is not what I would have expected, because that that is the the character that you you fucking gotta get exactly right, or you're gonna really screw yourself over. Right. You know, uh, you know they they did a lot of things right in there. I just think that they they fucking totally missed the the whole point of the the story, and that was living in that world and seeing that world. So which is you a know, shame. That, yeah. yeah, I feel like we need this story more than ever. I know we we say that about a lot of stuff these days because fantasy and and storytelling or the the escapes that we have created from the horrible world that we were born into. But I think this story in particular is one that really has a particular specific relevance and resonance for now. Like what do you do in the face of the end of everything and how do you rebuild and who are you going to be when you can be anybody? Because I think that that's the thing that unites all these characters is they were someone before and they're, they can be someone after and they have a choice. And I think right. you, you were right, Eric, to point out that kind of the push, the push and pull and the, and the conflict within each character being a cool idea. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's the thing is that it's it's about that that kind of feeling of the empty world and the getting to know and love uh, and or hate the characters that, that remain in that world. And, and, and you'd only get that through that interaction. And, you know, that's the script absolutely fails that. And, uh, yep. and it, it, that's the toughest part. And I think that's probably why, you know, it's pretty easy to agree that Mick Garris's adaptation, you know, while very nineties TV is still far and away, the best version is the one that understood that that's what was important about the story. Yeah. Um, and uh, you yeah, the know, Josh Boone version was very 2020s TV, <laughs> right? Which is, which is like, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent too much, but I think they all look a lot of TV shows look the same now. They're right. all shot kind of in the same places on the same sets with the same cameras, and yeah. it just felt very flat and it felt small. And there isn't that sense of the epic on American TV anymore because right. of just how the economics of streaming work. Yeah, and and the streaming, you know, money hoses are being shut off. So, <laughs> so sure I are. think that that's, uh, you know, that th- there was a window where that could happen. I kind, I really wish, as much as I didn't, I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. I, I kind of wish that the Boone thing never happened because the post pandemic uh, approach to a stand thing is really interesting to me. Uh, it's it, it's not going to be as interesting to me. <sighs> 15 years from now, whenever they, you know, enough time has passed and they're able to try to reboot it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But nobody's ever really figured out how to tell that story now. Like why the last man didn't work for a variety of reasons. And that was trying to be like the pandemic show and it didn't really click. Um, The stand didn't, I think, you know, there's some stuff in the new Godzilla show that are kind of, they're sort of funny nods to, the pandemic, but nobody's, nobody's figured it out. And this is the story. It's right there. It's just hard to adapt as we can tell. Well, better luck next time. Uh, Rospo Pallenberg. He's got (laughs) another one in the chamber. I'm sure he's probably (laughs) slaving away on some adaptation in paradise lost right now. (laughs) Good. Good Lord. (laughs) Well, um, 
Is there anything else we want to talk about in relation to this? I feel like Hopefully we've beaten not. it to death. No, yeah, I'm good. No, it's it's a piece of crap. It's yeah. It sucks. Well, we uh, we do thank you for bringing this to us. I, I like doing these format breaking episodes. It keeps things interesting around here. And, uh, you know, it was a 50-50 whether or not the script would be any good. And, um, you know, we didn't get the 50 we wanted on that. But uh, <laughs> there's, a, you know. there's a scene in the we talked about this on Twitter in the in the um, film or in the script where a guy gets it's it describes his head as being blown half off. Yes. Yeah. And then he has a soliloquy after with yeah. half a face. And I mm-hmm. feel like we got the fucked up face uh, version of that guy. And he also had a soliloquy because that's this is a very verbose and boring script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go. We got the wrong half. Yes. Yeah, we got the wrong half. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, man. And, uh, you know, here's to your, you know, I don't know uh, what your next appearance will be. Hopefully it will be a uh, a much better uh, uh, screenplay or yeah. and or adaptation that we're talking about. I'll sign off with the words of a great man. Um, here's to your fuck. Here's to your <laughs> fuck, Frank. If you know the reference, you're you're in the right place. Yeah, of course, you know that on. reference. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Here's knows. to your fuck, Frank. Well, here's to your fuck, sir. <laughs> Have a very happy holidays. Thank you. You too. Many thanks to Dave Schilling for coming back on the show. Uh, no thanks to him for making us read the script, but thanks to him for coming back on the show. Yeah, that was fun. Like I, I really, really uh, dug this. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about wanting to throw some curveball eps into this fourth year of the show, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we got to keep things lively around here. Uh, I think that was better than just having a, a regular stand conversation. Um, yeah. And I, I, I hope everybody uh, who listened to it uh, rolled with it and liked it as well. That's the first time I feel like we've actually discussed the stand on the show and kind of encapsulated it. Our other attempts to do that, it's just like the thing is so fucking unwieldy that it feels like, I don't know, like we couldn't possibly hope to encompass it within the confines of a single episode. It feels like you would have to have like a six hour episode on the stand in order to, or an entire stand mini series, which is, you know, what our, <laughs> our, our pal Mike Flanagan and Anthony Bresnikin and, and company did uh, a while back with uh, in the company, of the mad yeah. um, they, they were on to something there. Putting it all in one episode doesn't work much like putting it all into one feature film script. Doesn't work, <laughs> as we found out on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, that was fun. It was, just, and this is something I've always been fascinated by. I love these these almost made movies. You kind of mm-hmm. think of like pre multiverse. This is what we had to do to entertain ourselves: is to to read scripts for movies that weren't made and, and imagine in our minds the worlds in which uh, those scripts were were made. Um, and I'm glad that we don't live in this this reality. Whatever else is going right in that reality, uh, we at least dodge that bullet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about what's going on next week. Do you want to tease our, our title and guest for next week? Yeah. Um, next week, we are speaking to a, uh, a first-time feature filmmaker who has made a, a new horror movie by the name of The Seeding. We have both seen The Seeding and uh, found it to be very enjoyable. Uh, his name is Barnaby Clay, and um, he's joining us to talk uh, misery, which has uh, uh, maybe some connective thematic tissue to uh, to the film that that he's made. Um, it, again, this is like, you know, we've talked about misery a number of times on the show, but um, we still are finding ways to, you know, uh, chew this one over. That, that one's a very uh, 
rich topic, I think. And um, it's a good conversation. That'll hit uh, the main feed next Wednesday. Indeed. And then this Friday, as always, we have our Patreon bonus ep. And this Friday, it is going to be Scott and I essentially just catching up on what we've been doing. This is bullshitting with Scott and Eric. We will be talking about what we've been watching, what we've been reading. We'll probably be talking about some stuff that's been in the news. The Oscars were just uh, announced. I'm sure that'll come up. Uh, you know, there's, it'll be one of those kind of episodes where we're, you know, what in the last, uh, few weeks, what have we been doing? What have we been watching? What have we been reading? What have we been playing? And, uh, um, you know, what's caught our eye, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah. So head on over to patreon.com slash the King cast and sign up. You get access to that. You'll get access to all of our Shelbyville episodes. You'll get access to, all of our commentaries and everything. So if you dig the show and you're not subscribed at the Patreon, you're really only getting half the show. We do two episodes every week, one episode in the main feed, one episode on the Patreon. So head on over and sign up and join that community. You'll get access to the Discord too. You'll get to see all them uh, them horny mofos in the Discord. And uh, 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 good, good horny, I want to point out, not like yes. creepy horny. And yes. uh, yeah, do it. We, we appreciate the community that's kind of developed over there, and uh, we welcome uh, any new blood into that community. Thriving community. Flowering metropolis over on, over on Discord. Yes. <laughs> come, and, come and join in our, our reindeer games. Yes. Um, but I think that's it for this week, yeah? Yeah, that is. So we'll see you all next week for Misery in the Main Feed with Mr. Barnaby Clay. And this Friday on the Patreon to listen to what Scott and I have been <laughs> been up to in the last few weeks and what we've been, what's been entertaining uh, our ears and eyes and uh, maybe other parts. Who knows? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so we'll see you all then. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.